ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. I couldn't believe it. Because it was locked down, so I had this like set up at home. And usually I was too curious to just leave the camera and leave the room. So I was usually just sitting in front of it for hours. And I got the camera just right and the, the position was just right. And then it started twitching and the legs were starting to curl up. That's when I saw for the first time that also the eyes actually started moving right with that face. And I was like, wow. So I was, I was just sitting there texting all my my colleagues, <laughs> like, holy shit. Many of us got twitchy in lockdown, but it's only a twitchy sleeping spider in a spare room that'd get that sort of reaction from a sleep scientist. Holy shit. Why? Because sleep, believe it or not, doesn't necessarily occur in all living things. What? The duck. I'm Ann Jones. Sleep is doing all sorts of things for animals. Associate Professor John Lescu is head of the Sleep Ecophysiology Group at La Trobe University. Most basically, it seems to be involved with energy conservation, that when you're sleeping, you save energy, and you save energy by not doing something more energetically demanding, and you save energy by lowering your metabolic rate. But then, in addition to that, sleep is also doing lots of things for the brain. So sleep is clearing waste that is generated by the action of neurons while they're active and firing. Sleep is involved with the consolidation of new memories. It's doing all sorts of things. On the surface, when you look at a sleeping animal, you think that it could almost be maladaptive because you're so vulnerable when you're asleep. The very evolutionary and ecological persistence of sleep indicates that it must be doing something important. This is a voluntary period of unresponsiveness, best characterized by sort of heightened vulnerability to threats. And yet we do it for one third of our lives. And some animals do it for the majority of their lives, such that being awake is actually the least common state. So it must be doing something important, right? But we need to get a bit of a definition going on here. What is sleep? Yeah, perfect. So that's a a simple but not so simple question. Dr. Shawnee Omond is a sleep ecophysiology researcher. So when you're looking at behaviour in usually animals, you look at five key characteristics. Their species-specific posture and location. So every time they're asleep, they have a particular physical position and maybe a place also like a dugong floating softly just above the bottom of a body of water, or me in the fetal position, somewhere dark and quiet. From there, you look at arousal threshold. So if you're awake and you're sitting there talking to me and I poke you on the shoulder, you feel that and you look at me and you're like, why'd you poke me? Now, if you're asleep and I sneak up to you and I poke you, you might not feel that because your arousal threshold has increased. So it takes a larger stimulus to create that arousal. So instead of me poking you when you're asleep, maybe I I punch you and you definitely wake up to that because it was larger and now you're mad, so you're awake. Then sleep will also be circadian regulated in some way. So whether that means you're nocturnal or diurnal or whatever, there's often a daily pattern to the sleep. But the last is sort of the big one. It's called homeostatic regulation. And all this means, it's a fancy term for 
If you miss sleep, you will make that sleep up. Simply, you're up late one night, you sleep more the next night. Okay, so with all of this in mind, a set of criteria ready for us to tick. Does everything sleep? Uh, yeah, so our <laughs> there's caveats here too. But at present, we do not have an example of a truly sleepless animal. Uh, people have studied sleep, of course, in vertebrates and found that sleep appears to be in all vertebrate groups. Within invertebrates, which constitute 99% plus of all animal life, we've really just scratched the surface. We have sleep data for maybe 10 arthropods, you know, honeybees, fruit flies. We have data for a handful of mollusks, octopus, cuttlefish, snails. They all sleep. And worms. Do worms sleep? My name is Shawnee Omar. The same Shawnee who just told us about the criteria of sleep. Professionally, I study flatworms and their sleeping habits. And they are Gerardia tigrina, which is their taxonomic name, which sounds real fancy. Not the earthworms that turn up on footpaths after rain. These are little aquatic worms. So moats, rivers, lakes, those types of things. They're about one centimetre long and skinny. Flattened from sort of top to bottom, so they're nice and squashed. It makes them look a bit sluggy, really. Sorry, worms. They have a triangular-shaped head and then a little body that sort of pops out behind it, I guess. As if they were an arrow drawn with a thick texture. They're super cute. One of the reasons I study them is because physiologically they're so simple. So... They actually have evolutionarily undergone something that we call secondary simplification. So they used to be much more complex and their closest ancestors are a lot more complex. And then I guess the flatworm just decided it didn't need things like a respiratory system, an endocrine system. Jeez, it's like it Marie Kondoed its own organs. It doesn't have an anus, so it doesn't even really have a mouth. So in the middle of the flatworm body, so not in the head, but in the middle of the flatworm body, it has something that we call a pharynx, and that's actually where it takes in food and ejects wastes. So it kind of has a mouth butt, and the mouth butt is in the middle of the body rather than in the head where you'd expect it to be, which is, I don't know why, but it just trips me up every time I think about it. Like a meat tube with a mouth butt. But they do have bilobial brains. Two hemispheres. And who else has two hemispheres? Us, the big worms. So that makes them a really good test subject for Shawnee to use because she wanted to find out the impacts of certain sleep-aligned chemicals on bilobial brains, things you might have heard of, like melatonin. But it's a bit hard to convince a tiny flatworm to take a tablet, so Shawnee had to come up with different ways to get the drugs into them. So I gave them a bath in this little tiny, it's like a soy sauce dipping bowl. I mean, a bath in sleep-inducing chemicals sounds delicious. And that's where they lived, getting soaked in their neurotransmitter bath for 40 minutes. Now, on top of this, what I did is I also fed them the neurotransmitter. So I feed my flatworms hard-boiled egg yolk. And so what I did is I made a mixture where I mixed up egg yolk and neurotransmitter and a little bit of black food dye and then I basically surveyed that until it was solid. Sous vide, mm. very 2000s, very MasterChef, very fancy. And then fed it to the flatworms. And it turned the worms black because they're so tiny and so thin you can actually see their insides. And then we 
basically just filmed them to see whether they moved or didn't move and how much. When the flatworms fell asleep, they'd go steal and sort of scrunch up. But Shawnee got mixed results. Some of the chemicals had no impact on the worms and others worked similar to how they might in a mammal. So it's likely or it's suggested from our research that these are evolutionarily significant and old neurotransmitters and the function of them may not have changed that much over the course of evolution to present day. It's crazy because like you doing all of these intricate experiments with these flatworms tell partially anyway can tell a story that's millions of years old. Yeah so the flatworms are thought to be around like six to eight hundred million years old. Obviously we can't know for certain but we can hedge our bets and, you know, have a really good guess that these haven't changed and that these neurotransmitters or have existed for that long and have been potentially involved in sleep and wake processes for that long as well. It's weird to think that some of these chemicals that rule our well-being essentially and take us off into the land of Nod have been impacting us since we were all from the same litter as the flatworms. Yeah. (laughs) To be honest, Filming sleeping animals sounds quite relaxing, but has anyone ever studied whether sleep researchers themselves get a good sleep? <laughs> if you talk to my friends and myself, we all sleep horribly. Um, so, <laughs> so, yeah, Niels, Niels is a chronic night owl, and I am an insomniac. So um, we're we're not exactly case studies for quality sleepers. That's for sure. <laughs> Oh, look, it's probably unprofessional of me to point out, but have you guys actually considered that this could be karma? Yes, so uh, we've done a series of studies on Australian magpies. Not just on magpies' sleep, but what they're like when they're sleep-deprived, and that means you've had to keep the magpies awake. And if you sleep-deprived birds, um, perhaps the most uninteresting of findings is birds don't really want to do cognitive tests. They're tired, they're unmotivated, I know. They didn't want to do it, so they had reduced attention, reduced motivation to perform the tasks. But however, the individuals that were able to engage with the task performed worse than better rested birds, suggesting that they had an impairment associated with the extended periods of wakefulness. So this would parallel findings that you would see between Australian magpies and people as well. Yeah. Okay, I have to ask how you kept the magpies awake. Uh, We tried all sorts of (laughs) techniques. Um, We taped a cell phone to their perch, and then we would call their cell phone (laughs) repeatedly. Um, We also would drive remote control. That is so annoying. Oh, my God. But it didn't work. What They got used to it, (laughs) did they? They got got used to it. We also would drive remote control cars around the floor of their aviary at night and this didn't work. So in the end, we went to a really low tech solution. And that is to say, we were simply in the room. And so the birds could see us. So we could just, we could just walk around the aviary and then gently stimulate the birds through the mesh of the aviary. And in the end, this worked fine. Um, So the low tech solution was ultimately the one we went with. So you're saying you gave him a little poke? We gave them a little poke, yeah. (laughs) I can just imagine the ethics you had to fill in to do that. (laughs) For all of our work, in fact. 
Yeah, yeah, which is really important, obviously, because sleep Mm. deprivation is a form of torture. That's right. Well, it can be, but not necessarily for every single species. We have identified about a decade ago the first evidence that some species could forego sleep seemingly without cost, indicating that sleep loss can at least at times, and in some species, be an evolutionarily adaptive thing to do. These are pectoral sandpipers, this small shorebird that has non-breeding grounds in the southern hemisphere. And then each spring, they migrate to above the Arctic Circle to breed under continuous daylight of the midnight sun. During that time, the males have a lot to do. They have to set up territories. They have to chase away rivals. They have to convince females to mate with them. They have to look out for predators and they have to eat. So much to do, so little time. And the males are motivated to mate with as many females as possible. Whereas the females, they're very choosy about which male will sire her only clutch of the season. And seemingly the only thing that would get in the way of a male outcompeting his rivals is a biological drive to sleep. And in 2012, we reported that some male sandpipers were capable of, you know, extreme sleep loss, that these males would sleep less than two hours per 24-hour day for up to three weeks. And the surprising thing about that is that in all other species that we know of, the way you perform while awake is dependent upon the quality and quantity of your prior sleep. But these male sandpipers didn't seem bothered at all, and in fact, they thrive. The researchers found that the really successful males had micro-naps that were seconds long. But other birds do something even more weird, according to... Niels Rattenborg. I'm the leader of the avian sleep group at the Max Planck Institute for Biological Intelligence. And he's a great admirer of frigate birds, aren't we all? Frigate birds are very large, mostly black seabirds... Maybe you would know them by the fact that the males are famous for inflating large red throat sacs that they use uh, for displays to attract females. More than that, they're famous from natural history films, grabbing other birds, scaring the bejesus out of them until they vomit their stomach contents up so the frigate bird can eat it. They don't have a, a very good reputation. You're not wrong. Although they're featured doing these nasty things, parasitizing other birds, There are studies showing that they actually obtain most of their food on their own while foraging far out over the ocean. And to do that, they have great whopping wings. Niels calls them... Masters of the sky. The great frigate bird wingspan can be over two metres wide. They have lowest wing loading. That means they have more surface area per body mass than any other bird. And when you watch them, they literally look like they're just floating effortlessly on just any minor air current. They also look a bit like pterodactyls. How far will they travel, do you know? They will go thousands of kilometres in one trip, and they've been shown to fly nonstop for as long as two months. And that's a long time to be awake and driving. So, can they sleep and fly at the same time? Is it possible? People have wondered for a long time whether they can sleep in flight, but we haven't had the technology to be able to actually determine if they sleep. 
And to do this, we need to measure their brain waves, their electroencephalogram or EEG. And from the changes in those patterns, we can tell when they're awake or asleep. And recently, a colleague in Switzerland developed a small microchip that was small enough to actually attach to the frigate birds' heads and thereby measure their brain activity while they're flying over the Pacific Ocean. And what did the data tell you? Do they sleep? As many people uh, predicted, they can sleep in flight. And this is the first evidence of sleep in flight in any bird. And they usually do it with one half of the brain at a time. Mind blown. Or half of my mind. It's called unihemispheric sleep. Unihemispheric, just one half of the brain at a time into the land of frigate nod. What was exciting is we found there was also a strong relationship between which half of the brain was sleeping and which way the birds were circling in the rising air. And so when the left half of the brain was sleeping, they were turning to the left, and when the right half was sleeping, they were turning to the right. So it seems like they were using this unihemispheric sleep as a form of flight control to make sure perhaps they don't run into other frigate birds also sleeping on the wing. Just sounds so glorious to be gliding up, up, up in a dreamlike state, or at least asleep. What could be better? Could sleeping suspended in a little silk nest work for you? Daniela Rosler is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Constance, a behavioural ecologist who has been studying sleep in spiders. Yeah, spiders. There's a species that's called Evacha aquarta. They have a common name, which is gorilla jumping spiders. Wait, wait. You want to hear the sound I just made when I found out what the spiders were called? If you picture a grumpy-looking gorilla that's sitting on its haunches in a forest, the 8mm arachnid looks like a tiny, tiny, tiny spider version of that. (laughs) Because the males are very black and they have these really big front um, legs. Ah, beefy. Yeah, they are very beefy and they look a little bit like gorillas. (laughs) So, imagine Daniela getting on with her PhD in the fancy rooms at the uni where you can control the light and the circadian rhythms and the temperatures, everything, down to a T. But then COVID hits, right, and lockdown. So she takes a heap of spiders home to her place, finds a spare corner and a digital camera and sets up a spider sleeping station in the apartment. Luckily, some spiders, at least the ones where we started off with, they showed a very conspicuous sleeping posture. Hmm. Remember, one of the ways to identify if a creature is asleep is if they have a sleeping posture. And these spiders, where we saw it for the first time, they hung themselves on a little silk strand upside down. Less like a noose, more like Rocky holding onto a rope that's tied to a helicopter. And they hold the silk with one little foot and then they hang like that, suspended all night long. And that's apparently how they sleep. (laughs) And more than that, the gorilla jumping spider has a whole bedtime routine. It's a little bit like like we go and brush our teeth, <laughs> get ready for bed. Right after they drop down on that silk line, they usually will clean themselves. So every leg gets like clean and they brush their head and it's, yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's so adorable. It can take 20 minutes sometimes. There are probably some things we could learn from spiders' bedtime habits. 
no screen time, only self-care. And then they become rather still. And curled up at the end of their silk bungee cord. There's this, this one thing I think everyone is familiar with, even without knowing anything about spiders. And that is if you find a dead spider in your home. A sad day indeed. You will find it curled up. Like all the legs will be curled towards the center of the spider. And that is a very peculiar position you will never see in a spider that is alive, <laughs> unless it is sleeping, apparently. Because uh, the explanation for this is that spiders are actually, they, they function by a hydraulic pressure. There's a muscle in the spider's head, yes, its head, which contracts and pushes fluid into the legs, and that's how the legs extend. So when it's asleep, those muscles that are keeping the pressure up relax and the legs curl up. What happens during REM sleep in humans and other like, vertebrates and animals is that the muscles become basically paralysed. And if we now put that same idea, if that is true also for spiders, that would mean that the whole pressure system, because of that muscle in the head, falls together and breaks down. And as a consequence of that pressure loss, we see the same leg curling that we see in dead spiders during that phase. I mean, sometimes when humans are asleep, they look dead. Hands up if you've had to wake up someone just to check. And then eventually you will start seeing little phases like bouts of like twitching and sudden movements that are absolutely uncontrolled, just like how we do during REM sleep. So you'll see twitches and because we could see through the skin in the babies, we could see that the eyes are also moving during that time. You can see through baby's skin? Just when they hatch, the, the exoskeleton isn't pigmented yet, which means that we can just look right through it. Um, so we try to kind of trans-illuminate them with infrared light. So the cameras are sensitive uh -huh. to infrared. And because the retinas uh, are then pretty dark, you can see those tubes right through the spider. It means that studying some of the internal movements of the spiders can take place in a non-invasive way, if you call being filmed while you sleep non-invasive. So Daniela is in a corner of her house with a spider hanging from a piece of silk with UV lights shining at it and every once in a while, the spider's eyes wiggle like crazy. And that's where she said, Holy shit! Because that sort of looks like R-E-M, REM. That's a part of sleep where we humans dream. Yeah, the parallels are actually mind-boggling. <laughs> so every half hour or something, it would occur and they would get longer over the course of the night. An incredible parallel to REM sleep in humans where also REM sleep phases get longer over the course of the night. Because until that moment, REM, or REM-like states, have only been observed in mammals and birds. Not spiders in the corner. Not spiders in the spot. Light losing their night vision. Sorry. What do you believe is actually happening inside the spider? Are they having REM sleep? So it's a question we're asking ourselves now. And the other question we have to ask with it is, what is REM sleep? Because kind of finding it in spiders seriously challenges what we thought REM sleep is so far. <laughs> and that is something that is connected with very complex brains. So what does it mean we find something like REM sleep in spiders. Just from an evolutionary perspective, we have to ask ourselves, like, how much more basal is it 
basal, meaning that it's a trait that's a fundamental function of an organism, something like breathing, something that goes right back to our common ancestors, perhaps. I think it just shows how much of a knowledge gap we really have in terms of sleep evolution. The very general question of what is sleep and why do we all sleep, why do all animals sleep, is still unanswered. And if they have sleep and something like REM, then do spiders dream? Your little jumping spiders, they wake up in the morning, they're like, I had the weirdest dream. I dreamed that there was this huge, like, human that was videoing me while I was asleep. What a creep. (laughs) That's me. (laughs) I'm Ann Jones, and this is What the Duck. To sleep, perchance to dream. Yep, if animals are having REM sleep, then are they dreaming? Listen to the next episode as we get a bit philosophical and try and find out that if indeed animals do dream, will we ever be able to know what they're dreaming about? What the Duck is produced by Patria Ladgrove and Dan Jones and made on the lands of the Wadawurrung and Ghana people. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.